So I was passing through the Shambles Market a few years ago and I paused at an antique stand. My eye was caught by a little box that contained memorial cards in a bundle. I'm not a big fan for negotiating, but in this instance I haggled for a sum for the entire lot of 25 cards. And it was having a bundle that perhaps told me a little more than I would have known by just buying one. I'm a big fan of funerary ephemera. My work generally in the death world looks at cemeteries, but within cemeteries, the things that intrigue me most are not the grand and heavy memorials, but evidences of behaviours that were much less concrete. I'm sometimes less interested in the headstone, although I am still very interested in that, and more interested in what people did at the graveside and the things they brought. And when it comes to funerals, ephemeral items can hint at the largely unspoken social rituals that accompanied a death. The conventions that everyone took for granted, so much for granted that no one wrote anything about them, which means that as practices changed, earlier iterations were entirely forgotten. So one intersection of these two interests is the memorial card. Early memorial cards from the Victorian period could be very grand embossed affairs. They were generally not substantial, around 12 centimetres by nine, and often with a heavy black border. These were memorial cards sent after the funeral by bereaved relatives to mark a death. Nowadays, we're more familiar with condolence cards that we send to somebody who's bereaved. But the Victorian memorial card was in some instances supplied by the undertaker, but probably could also be ordered directly from a stationer or from one of those newfangled department stores. Memorial cards were highly decorative items. The embossed patterns are, as you can imagine, of profound interest to death scholars who regard the designs of death as being strong evidence for changing attitudes towards mortality. Often the cards displayed classical motifs, idealised tombstones draped in thickly fringed cloth with weeping willows and angels. The central portion would be blank, allowing for the introduction of text. So the one I'm looking at the moment at is entirely typical. In memory of the late Mr William Settle, it says, of Armley, who departed this life on the 18th day of April, 1856, aged 83 years. This is not a particularly remarkable item, not uniquely beautiful, and by this time something of a mass-produced product. But I wonder at the significance of this item for the family that bought it, and I wonder if some families, hard-pressed to create a tomb so grand, settled for a paper imitation. So cards were ordered from the stationer, who'd bring out printer's catalogues and might very well discuss the purchase in detail with a customer. So we know one Batley print catalogue from 1892 gives 35 different samples, but indicates that between 12 and 15,000 patterns were in stock, so you could mix and match the patterns according to your taste. The cards were available for a dozen a shilling, or more elaborate versions with designs were two and six. But it's interesting to me that the memorial cards survived and continued well into the 20th century. We're so dismissive of funerary culture in the 20th century as being somehow bereft in comparison with its Victorian counterpart. Certainly design became simpler in the modern world and perhaps more attuned to demand in the mass market. Bertram Puckle's Funeral Customs, Their Origin and Development is a book written in 1926. Death scholars are very used to using it, but it stands as a double commentator on the funeral customs themselves, but also on the attitudes towards such customs in 1926. Sometimes we learn more about Puckle than we do about the funeral customs. He writes that the morning card, in its present form, exhibits, he says, all the elementary lack of taste, which is so marked a feature of everything connected with our funeral customs. And he describes them in detail. He says, as a rule, in addition to the name and age of the deceased, 
some symbol of the Christian faith sufficiently obscured by a wreath of lilies or ivy in order to render it acceptable to all shades of public opinion is on the card, a verse selected from some popular hymn expressing a pious aspiration, preferably in relation to sleep, is added, but avoiding of course all the pitfalls either definite or dogmatic. It's very easy to parody this aspect of the dismal trade. By the interwar period the memorial card had indeed become rather simple in design and they were still ordered from the stationer though as a bespoke item. It was by this time a folding card, still of small dimensions, generally 12 by 8 centimetres. The envelope had a heavy black trim. They were printed in black and silver, with the designs no longer hinting at gravestones, but rather more consolatory abstract arrangements of crosses, flowers and ivy. Buckle sneers at these cards, but actually stopping to look at them in detail indicates quite careful choices. Looking at 25 cards together, no two cards are the same in design terms. The elements are all the same, but the choices differ. Even the font selections differ, although the elements of the printing stay the same. In loving memory, always at the top. Then the name, separate line where they've come from, date of death, and then the age. Often in smaller font along the bottom, details of the place, date, and time of the funeral. It's an element of family record, and as Buckle intimates, you could often find these placed in the family Bible. But I suspect the thing that strikes me most is the verse. Almost all the cards were printed on the inner cover page with a verse. In all instances, we're talking about doggerel, four or eight lines, scanning tidily with very neat rhymes. But families would have chosen the verse as being the very best reflection of their feelings and circumstances. I don't think anyone chose these verses carelessly. What are the verses saying? What do they tell us about mortality? I think many of them hint at a deathbed that was less than ideal. So here's one example. Don't weep for me, nor wish me back. I now from pain am free, and in my Jesus' arms I rest where I have longed to be. You watched for me by my bedside, now I'll watch for you, and when you reach the golden gates, I'll come and pull you through. That was for Elizabeth Scott, who died in 1915, aged 76. Or the rather simpler message on the card of Anne Spence, who died in 1924. She suffered long in silence, her pain with patience bore, till Jesus called her to him to never suffer more. We're very critical of palliative care, often in our current health service. Before 1948, we had no National Health Service and no prospect of affordable pain relief for people who might take months or even years to die of a painful degenerative disease. For me, the cards are a grim reminder that death could be as much a relief for the families taking care of someone in their final years. And there was hope, hope in a heavenly reunion still, the only consolation. A cliche becomes a cliche, because it has an element of truth. These cards all look the same, but they weren't. We shouldn't dismiss them. Their mass nature doesn't mean they weren't heartfelt. The experience of death that they hint at is one of pain suffered perhaps without medical assistance, a watched bedside, and relief at the last breath.